put your head down and slog through it, things will change and most likely get better. And the sucky periods may last years, but they will change and get better. And you won't get to get to the other side if you don't stick it through. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are well, we're not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. I'm certainly going to keep trying. Now, we are talking about suicide. This may not be a good fit for everyone. So please take that into account before you listen. But I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. If you're a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I'd love to talk. You can reach out by email, hello at suicidenoted.com, or message us on social media at Suicide Noted. A couple of quick favors. If you listen on Apple, help us out if you can right now. Take a moment and rate and review this podcast. It really helps people find it. Thank you for that. If you'd like to help us out financially, we've got a Patreon page. I'll put that in the show notes. We've got a few different tiers. We'd love your support. Either way, thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast and these attempt survivors. Today, I am talking with Mark. Mark lives in Massachusetts, and he is a suicide attempt survivor. What's going on? I don't know about where you are, but it's brutally cold here this weekend. It's cold here, too. Not like you. I think we're... I mean, cold in North Carolina is, you know, under 40. You guys are probably... In the teens, right? Well, it was 10 when I woke up this morning. So, Mark, you heard somebody share a story, somebody we both know, share a story about their suicide attempt and decided maybe you'll talk about it too, yeah? I've always had the kind of opinion, at some point, absolutely everyone has thought about it. Yeah. Absolutely everyone. But that the number of people who go ahead and try is... Um, vastly smaller number. And it's also tricky. I mean, you obviously you can't measure typically what people are thinking and the degree to which they're sort of passively ideating versus actively right. planning and all in between. It's also tricky to figure out actual numbers. I mean, if somebody right. goes to a bridge and jumps, that's a suicide attempt. If somebody's drinking two bottles of vodka every night, is that a suicide attempt? Is that an addiction? Is that what category does that right. get put under, you know? Or if you go on the bridge and you think about it a long time, is that an attempt if you don't actually jump? That's a great point. I mean, if you go as far as your ideation to get out on that bridge, that's going pretty yeah. far. Yeah. And I've had a couple of people on here that I've talked to that were in the, the exact position. And I tell them, if you think it was an attempt, please come on the show. You, you decide. I'm not the gatekeeper here. The couple of times I've really seriously thought about it, I was always looking for the most peaceful, calmest way. Mm-hmm. I wasn't looking for messy or splashy. I wasn't writing fuck you notes. I wasn't looking to even tell anybody. Right. You wanted out, presumably. 
out, but not in like a blow myself up, slash my wrist, blow my brains out kind of way. I wasn't looking for splashy. I wasn't looking for a statement. Yeah. I just wanted out. Like if I could give you a pill and said, Mark, this is going to work. You're going to sleep and not wake up. Yeah. That was what I was looking for. Yeah. To be honest. How many times were you in that kind of situation where you were that close? Do you recall? Two specific. I mean, the one where I actually did try to do carbon monoxide poisoning. And if I had chosen anything less noxious than a lawnmower, could well have worked. I smile not to be a dick. I'm just like, huh, a lawnmower. You just elicit some sort of like, go figure. Yeah. You know? Well, like I said in the story, the few times I've really told people generally in public, mm-hmm. there's this kind of, you can see it going behind their eyes. Yeah. There's this kind of, how would that work? And have you still got all your fingers and toes kind of stuff? Because they're f- thinking the blade. Yeah. No, it was just garden variety, vanilla, carbon monoxide poison. It's just the only combustion engine I happened to have around mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. yeah. And you were how old? That I was 19. All right. Again, I ask detail, but show what you're willing. Like, so the, the hard question, I think maybe the hardest question I ever ask people is, is there a why? I think the hardest question I was just talking about with my wife about this before I came on. The hardest part is just in retrospect, how banal it seems. Mm. You know, there's a kind of embarrassment factor of seriously. I'd just been dumped my, by my very first girlfriend. You know, we'd been together in high school. She went off to college. I went off to a gap year. We tried to make the long distance thing work, came back and she basically said, I'm seeing someone else too bad. My reaction was not good to that. So that time, yeah, it was just something as banal as getting dumped by a girlfriend. Yeah. Well, but let me ask you a question though. So, so a lot of people would, would (laughs) grieve or, or do things. Maybe they would get high or drink, who knows any number of things to cope somehow. Not everybody would do what you did. So what do you think? Ah, This is getting into a place where it's truly exploratory, but you went a step further than some others might. And so any idea why Mark did that and some other people probably wouldn't have chosen to do that? This is sort of the benefit of years of therapy. But kind of what I realized in my years of therapy was some people just kind of hang their whole sense of self on the outside. They want to be liked, they want to be popular, they want to have positive feedback. They want, And if you're really hanging so much of your sense of self on the outside, it doesn't take a whole lot to really wound it. Right. And it took me a fair number of years to kind of pull it on the inside. Yeah. To get less exposed than that. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, in work, you know, a lot of that is, you know, I wanted to be recognized as being right all the time the smart guy and at some point you just kind of have to let it go and say you know no you know i'm not going to have to do it because someone admits i was right or even when i was wrong there's this kind of point where you have to start bringing it on the inside and Mm -hmm. say yeah i can take responsibility for my own sense of self yeah and given that our the listeners of this podcast the great majority have never (laughs) heard anything from grit and for those listening i met mark virtually (laughs) through a story a personal narrative story that he's involved in and I'm involved in. And uh, he shared a short story uh, about that attempt that he just referenced. So we don't necessarily have to go into super granular detail, but they didn't hear the story. So I'll let you say it. I'm just trying to summarize your words, but if you want to share what, what happened. Well, as we already covered the fact that you know, I just been dumb. And again, I also said earlier that 
my interest in suicide was never the big splashy fuck you note, the big make everybody feel bad kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I was always more interested in, I'd just rather go to sleep and not wake up and be a little more active about trying to make that happen. And in this particular instance, in this particular moment, Mm -hmm. I'd heard about carbon monoxide poisoning. Everybody always said, it's like you go to sleep and you don't wake up. The flaw in the reasoning is I didn't, you know, I was 19. I didn't own a car. I didn't have a garage. I didn't have my own house that I could just go and sit in there for however long it was. Uh, You missed that part of the formula. In retrospect, it's perfectly clear, but you know, lawnmowers are the dirtiest combustion engines you've got in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have mufflers, they don't have catalytic converters. It's not just the carbon monoxide; it's all the soot and crap and everything else that can possibly come out of burning something as a product. And that's ultimately what made it kind of intolerable. You know, there was no going to sleep peacefully and never waking up with it. It was grueling and nasty and painful. Was it? Yeah. The metaphor I used in that story was that it was like someone was putting a cheese grater over my lungs on the inside. Ooh. Were you and, in like a shed or something? Some close yeah. space? I was in the, the shed with the lawnmower. It was literally like someone was running over my lungs with a cheese grater. Every breath was excruciatingly painful. I've never done the thing with the car, so I don't have something to compare to. Yeah. But it was also just pounding headache because you know, you're breathing in all this crap and my head just was, felt like it was splitting open. It was just really excruciating. And finally, after 45 minutes or so, I just couldn't take it anymore. I was just like, oh, this is just too painful. That's a long time, man. 45 minutes feels like a pretty damn long time to be in pain. Well, it's one of these escalating things. Yeah. Yeah, you start, it's just noisy. And then as it goes on, everything kind of ramps up. Yeah. In a way, the pain saved you, no? Because if you weren't in so much pain, I presumably you wouldn't have left the shed. Right. Hmm. That's, in effect, what it boils down to, yeah. So how does it feel to, uh, you know, you got to, I know you got to go back a few years, you know, want to die or not want to be here. And then an hour or so later, you're still here. And, you know, presumably your pain, uh, not necessarily around the the, the breakup and the other stuff in your life is still there in your life. Now what? Again, the risk of sounding flip or sounding banal, you're thinking about what really saved my life in that period. It was over Christmas, you know, Christmas Mm -hmm. break from college and my Christmas present that year from my mom was this stupid book called juggling for dummies. So that's what saved my life is I spent like eight, nine hours a day doing this Wow! for the whole Christmas vacation. It's probably, I don't know if it'll read very well, but I also mm-hmm. sort of got down to the point. I actually numbered all of them. Yeah. I can see and until you actually get to the first couple of juggles, it was kind of like a forensic analysis sort of thing. I'd throw them up there and, and they would land all over the room and I say, well, okay, one is over here. So that means I got this far and two is over there. And so it was just a way of tracking for, you know, the first week, several days until I could figure out how to get it going. I just did that all Christmas break. I just tried to juggle. And that's kind of what got me through. Did you get good? Not ever very good. Yeah. Good gift. You, you never know what's going to be the right gift at the right time. <laughs> yeah. I wonder why your mom got that particular gift for you. I guess she knows her kid a little bit. <laughs> I don't know if she ever knew mm. that I tried to commit suicide when I was home on Christmas break. I never told her. I don't know if anyone else did. How many people knew <clears throat> in the ensuing days, weeks, or beyond that time? I called one of my friends from high school after I got out of the shed, and mm-hmm. he came over and spent the afternoon with me. I told my aunt, who was also a Freudian analyst. So it seemed like a twofer. Right. 
And then I can't remember if I told my brother, I think my aunt told my brother, but it was one of those kind of weird things. My brother was in law school at the time and he was having trouble with his girlfriend. So he just dropped out of his finals and came out, but he spent the entire vacation on the phone arguing with his girlfriend. So I never saw him. So it was just kind of like, well, what was the point? Did people respond? Yeah. I mean, there's only a few and one's a therapist, which is kind of interesting in its own right. Uh, How did they respond? Were they uh, supportive or say stupid shit or do you recall? Well, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I'm sure you've probably heard this any number of times. People want to be supportive, but they don't want to actually address the elephant in the room. 100%. Yeah. Let's go out for a walk. You know, let's go to the beach. Let's watch a movie. Nobody really knows how to talk about it. And you're dealing with somebody who's kind of a landmine in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of nobody wants to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of, you know, let's go out for a walk. Let's let's do something else. Let's get our mind off it. Sure. Kind of stuff. Yeah. At least that was my experience. I can't speak for everybody. But. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense to do something, right? Yeah. Um, I think about what you said, the wrong thing. And everybody's unique and they have their own things that might be the wrong thing. But from what I've learned is that there's very few things that are the wrong thing to say. I, I've learned uh, there's plenty of things that aren't helpful or useful. It's funny because a couple of weeks later, kind of one of the last times I talked to my ex-girlfriend, mm. I told her mm. and her response was, why are you telling me? And that's kind of, okay, it really, it really is over. There is, <laughs> there's really nothing there. Yeah. It's pretty harsh, but Hey, that's a pretty harsh response. Did you ever talk to her again? A few more times in the rest of our life. It hasn't been in many years. And so how many how many years later was it that you tried again? Or I don't know if it was an actual attempt or near it was attempt. before. All right. So what happened there? Sorry, I missed the order. Oh, no problem. I mean, I didn't say. When my parents split up, you know, there were a good like four or five years that were really shitty. My mom was a wreck, a basket case. There was a period as soon as the divorce was final, my mom picked us up and moved us like 3,000 miles away. So I was in a new place, didn't have any friends, didn't have anything else. And my mom would occasionally get drunk and scream tirades at me. And yeah, I was living in Illinois and we went out to California. Got it. And there was one particular night when she was drunk and she was having a tirade. Mm. I was in my bedroom and I was looking around and I was trying to think in my mind the specific order. Again, this is kind of the weird kind of detail that goes through your head. I found a thing of Comet, bathroom cleaner. And I found a trombone cleaning solvent. Both of them said fatal if swallowed. And I sat there at my desk with my mom screaming at me. Comet just sounds gross. There's really Mm -hmm. no way to eat Comet in any way that is going to be okay. Mm. And then I just sat there looking at this trombone cleaning solvent thinking, is there enough here? If I drink this, is there enough? And ultimately that's what stopped me is I was like, the bottle's not that big. It's only two or three fluid ounces. Is that enough? The indecision over whether it would do the job, that really kind of stopped me on that one. But you remember, it sounds like such detail. And this is probably more applicable to things like shooting yourself. Like you don't want to have a really botched job. You do not. Like I said, I just wanted more of the peaceful go to sleep kind of thing. I didn't want to be in a comatose state. I didn't want to have paralysis. or So I was thinking, will this do it? You know, this two or three ounces of cleaning solvent, will it do it? Yeah. And ultimately I said, yeah, I I don't want to take the risk of just coming out a vegetable or some other kind of nasty thing. So you decide to not take it. Like 
some time goes on, you have the experience with the lawnmower and 19 years old. How do you get through stuff? Like, are you just gritting it out? It's funny when you think how much that first one, how specific it impacted my life on the whole. The school before I'd always done okay, but I was never particularly dedicated to the whole idea of academics or doing well or competing for it. I was kind of a B, B plus student and happy with that. Right. When we moved to California and after my suicide attempt or thought there, I basically, yeah, I didn't have any friends. I was in a new place. I just started a new school. I did nothing but homework. I mean, 24 hours a day, I was just doing homework and I became a straight A student. Uh-huh. And that had an effect that kind of built on itself. Sure. You know, it's not like you start getting to do well and people start thinking of you as doing well. And then you get more opportunities because you're doing well. Again, it was one of these kind of like juggling. It was just take my mind off stuff. Amazing. It's a distraction, you know, personal yeah. distraction kind of technique. It just built into something more positive. Mm, makes sense. I can't help but think about your mom because you had mentioned that she was uh, moved you and she was drinking and dealing with all her own stuff and yelling at you. And then she also got you that book. It's just a it, kind of. I don't think there was a whole lot of intention. Like I said, it's just yeah. serendipity more sure. than anything. She wasn't thinking, oh, my son's suicidal. I need to get him yeah. something. To I mean, like I said, I don't, I, to this day, I don't think she knew when she yeah. died, but it certainly wasn't one of those things in the moment where she was trying to do something for me. It was just, in her mind, a silly throwaway gift that worked out real well. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. It just, but it did work out well that way. So you go back and you're like, oh, how about that? Wow. And so how often that happens in life, you know, it's not something you plan. It's something you put your head down and try and keep yourself distracted and something will work its way out of it. Yeah. And I think about with people I've spoken to so many others, I'll never speak to because they're not here anymore. Like some of it, it, the difference is they didn't get a juggling book. That's the difference. Sometimes, not always, sometimes, you know, a little different story, but I think (laughs) serendipity is, is some, that seems about right. Yeah. From uh, your second attempt until this moment, did you or do you spend time ideating or thinking about it anymore? There were other periods of depression in my life where I had thought about it. In fact, I mentioned I had been in therapy for, well, my therapist ended up dying, but I had been seeing him for, I think, 13 years at that point. There was one point at which I decided I wanted to try like Zoloft or Prozac or something like that. And he was a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. So he, Mm -hmm. you know, but he had this kind of throwaway comment that I thought was kind of eye-opening. He said, well, you know, the danger for someone like me is you start giving somebody who's really depressed Soloft and they come off of that floor where they can't even actuate anything. Mm-hmm. And as they're quote unquote getting better, they go through that period where they suddenly find enough motivation to do something. You got to watch out for that period where they'll go up from the absolute bottom through the zone where they might think about, well, uh, now I can actually try suicide. <laughs> There's a depth below suicide. That's a thing. Yeah. Right. Being able to have the energy or whatever it takes. The will, the energy motivation, whatever you want to call it. So did you end up trying those meds? Yeah, I did. I ended up taking Zoloft Yeah, for like three or four years. Well, it's funny because I've been told since that my reaction to it would actually be now considered a contraindication. What does that mean? Well, my reaction to it at the time, I found it helpful. Mm -hmm. Remember, I said the bit about hanging myself, my identity on the outside. Mm -hmm. When I was taking the Zoloft, I was just kind of like, I got into this kind of, well, I just don't give a fuck. Mm. Um, I didn't really pay any attention anymore to anybody in the outside and what they were saying to me or about me. 
And for me, that was very helpful. And I talked to another psychologist years and years later, and I made that comment. And she said, oh, no, that, you know, these days, that would be an indication we should take you off, that it wasn't working. I'm not the professional. I'm not the one who does the prescribing. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of like, it was what I needed at the time. Yeah. You know, and I was okay with that. You know, contraindication, whatever the medic, the diet, it worked for me. Yeah. I'm like, I'm okay with that. For sure. What kind of work did you do or do you do? Computer programmer. Oh, you like it? It fits my personality real well. Hmm. As you know, I've said to some people, this whole pandemic thing, you know, working from home on my couch, tapping away on the computer, there are days I forget where my shoes are in the house. That's perfectly good with me. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of people. I mean, I th- we don't know numbers and uh, I'm pretty sure that the suicide attempt rate and suicide completion rate it's going to be up when they look back and they put the numbers together. Yeah. But there are people, some of whom I've talked to, where they're like, well, you know what? This whole lockdown thing isn't very different than my life yeah. normally is. And I'm okay with, or I've gotten used to, yeah. and sometimes even like doing my own thing. So uh, yeah, it's not the immediate. I think for a lot of people, they think this is really, really bad. And it is for some, but but not for everyone. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, the other thing, I mean, the kind of stuff you're doing with the storytelling online yeah. mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who had a big void from not being able to go to the moth, not being able to go to the live events. Mm. And this is not the same, but it fills it pretty well. You know, doing it in a Zoom call fills it pretty well. We're trying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's better than nothing, right? Yeah, it's yeah. definitely helping some people out, which is great. It helps. You know what? I have told people on this podcast and outside of the podcast, doing this podcast and the work around the story stuff, you know, has been so helpful for me and my just overall health yep. uh, and and it's nothing fancy you know you're engaged yeah doing something you like you're setting goals you're meeting people they're all sort of basic things it's kind of like the benefits and the cons you meet so many people from so like melissa from seattle and you in north carolina and you don't get that at a moss slam you get right. people who are from the town around you and you do these kind of things it's, just, it's not as intimate but you're also getting a much broader selection of people to interact with. Right. That's a good point. I don't know if I'll ever meet them. I hope so, but you're right. That <laughs> well, you're, you're meeting them now. Yeah. Um, it's just right. not, you know, over a dinner. Different yeah. type of meeting. And um, yeah, and I, yeah, I, you're right. There's no way I would have met the great majority of them. Yeah. Um, so from a, just a opportunity uh, point of view, I suppose. Yeah. It's created opportunity. In that yeah. respect, that would not have been yeah. there had I just been doing my own little thing here in North Carolina. So, yeah. uh, do you think there are uh, myths around all of this stuff? When I say that, I mean it could be suicide or attempts or even mental illness, mental health that uh, you want to call bullshit on. My words. I like saying to people, I want people to know, no, that's just bullshit. Well, kind of like I said, the goth romantization of it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what I want to call bullshit on. Hmm. It's just a messy process and there's nothing to idealize about it. There's no, you know, tragic Edward in the Twilight Saga right. thing to be aspiring to in it. The other thing would be, and it's as banal as it sounds, put your head down and slog through it. Things will change and most likely get better. And the sucky periods may last years, but they will change and get better. And you won't get to get to the other side if you don't stick it through. True. I wonder why we, when I say we, I mean, just sort of a general cultural thing. Why do we romanticize it, do you think? I mean, if it's so not rom- 
pretty. What the fuck are we doing? I've been giving a lot more thought to this. Yeah. Primarily because I knew this call was coming up. And I was thinking that to a certain degree, it's kind of like a developmental stage. Like when you're a toddler, there's like from two to like four or five is when you start realizing there are other people in the world Mm -hmm. and what other people want also matters. Mm -hmm. So it's that kind of developmental stage. And I was thinking somewhere in your teens, there's most people are going to have a phase where they realize I am, what would it like to not be? Mm -hmm. And that's just sort of an intellectual exercise, a thought exercise that pretty much everybody at a certain like teenage year is going to start thinking about. And then there's a certain kind of romantization, I think, of like the Twilight Saga that kind of, well, the undead. And some people are going to be more religious backgrounds. That just never happened to be me. You know, what's the afterlife like kind of thing? What happens after you die? But there's a certain, I think, almost inevitable developmental stage where people just kind of think about what's the opposite of being. Existential stuff. Yeah. So you had said earlier something around people who you did talk to about it. They did stuff with you. They didn't really know what to say. They didn't want to get it wrong or say the wrong thing. You're an expert in your own lived experience. (laughs) Neither of us, I don't think, are doctors or claim to be and that kind of expertise. But I do wonder, do you, what do you think for people who are hearing this and are in the position of somebody just came to them and said, I tried, or I'm really thinking about trying, is there anything that we can say to them without knowing them, obviously, in their details, which matter, that either might help or perhaps not hurt, not make it worse? I guess I would preface it by saying there are a lot of things you can say that somebody might not be wanting to hear at the time. Yeah. I mean, it does sound too banal to say, you'll get through this. It does sound banal to say there are other fish in the sea. It does sound, but, but it is true. Yeah. And somebody might not be in a space where they want to hear it. Yeah. Or that they're going to take it on board that minute, but it is true. Right. That's a tricky one. True versus what they take. Right. Right. Whether they're able to take it at the moment. Right. And we know in some of those moments, stakes are a little higher, feels pretty, I don't know what the word is, but it's, not how you would, most people would be normally during their days. There's crises or some big, yeah. It's one of those I kind of hope eventually gets through to people with kind of like a drip torture sort of thing. You just hear it often enough. Eventually, you'll find a moment where it can slip through. I don't know where I was having this conversation recently. It might have actually been with Kurt, who I do the, the other uh, podcast with. On Story, when he lost his brother, he said what helped most. And this was different. It wasn't suicide. It was an accidental death. But nonetheless, he loved people asking him about his brother, asking questions and sharing stories. Not exactly the same thing with suicide, but it just made me think, yeah, asking questions and sharing stories is a pretty safe way to go when we're engaging with people. Like, you, yeah, people might still get pissed at you for asking the wrong question in the wrong way, but that's it seems safe to me. I don't know. You know, it's a scary thing, I think, for people, you know, the people I put in that position. Mm-hmm. It's a scary position to be in. Yeah. And hopefully they will recognize that, you know, somebody might yell at them. Somebody might yeah. not want to hear them, but just let it happen anyway. Yeah. And I, I can't, you know, I don't have kids, right? So I'd imagine, I don't know what that, I'm not going to imagine what that's like if my kid told me that they're thinking about ending their life. But I have friends and family, and I think it gets really tricky when you can't or aren't okay with what they might say. So if you ask them, are you thinking about taking your life? You got to be okay on some level with them maybe saying, I am thinking about that. 
Well, I was also just thinking the whole, well, you can't possibly understand, you don't know what I'm going through, the kind of things people in who tried might throw back at you yeah. for saying it. You have to kind of, if you're going to be the person taking on the, I'm going to try and get you through this thing, you might get some shit thrown at you. Definitely. Kind of got to have to let that happen. Yeah. Complicated, I suppose. Yeah. You know, what are some of the other things that you were thinking about as uh, you were thinking about this call? Are there other things that were prominent in your mind that you wanted to share? I was just actually was thinking of a comment you made earlier, how much of a certain form of alcoholism might effectively be a more passive aggressive suicide attempt, even if they're not thinking about it that way. You know, it can be. It's kind of odd because through experience and through other, seeing other people's experience, I knew one guy from the age of seven, his family had to hide the vanilla extract and the isopropyl rub, rubbing alcohol and the mouthwash and everything. Uh, yeah. Because he was that kind of an alcoholic. And I was just like, there is no way to explain a seven-year-old feeling depressed is a reason for alcoholism. That was biological. Mm-hmm. That's biochemical. There's no other explanation for that. Mm-hmm. But then there's a whole, I think, the much larger cadre of people who are using alcohol as essentially a form of self-medication. And some points it gets to the self-medication almost to the point of suicide. And and to the point where they're like, I wouldn't really care if I finished the second bottle of vodka and I didn't wake up mm-hmm. in the morning. I went through a phase like that as well. Yeah. Um, but again, it's one of those, we are deep-seated personally in my being. I know that I don't have a biological problem because... When things got better, I could stop that. Right. And I've known people, didn't matter how things were going in their life, they could not stop it. There's kind of like a whole range going on with the alcoholism and the other kind of substance abuse problems. Yeah. It's, I don't know if the word's overlapping. Yeah, they're all sort of intermingled in such, I don't know if it's, it it feels complicated ways, but kind of the way you just shared it seemed rather straightforward and simple is that some people it's biological, others not, and some both. How did you get into story stuff? I assume when you're doing something like that and you're diving in, it's good for you as it relates to your mental health and overall well-being. So that's sort of where I'm going with that question. There are a few different reactions that come to the top of my head on that. I've dragged my wife to enough moth story slams. She likes to say there's at least half of every moth story slam that's group therapy. Yeah. You know, somebody's getting up there and, you know, whatever the objective depth of their story, they're working something out. You know, whether it's I had a bad day at work and someone was a bitch, or yep. whether I tried to commit suicide. Yeah. Somebody's getting up there to work something out. There's a certain call and response aspect to doing that in a live audience that makes it sort of more to more of a group therapy kind of session. Yeah. Less so on Zoom. Not entirely gone, but less so. There's a certain, I guess you'd say emotional or psychic energy. Mm-hmm. that builds up in a room of actual people sitting and listening and talking to each other. Yeah, yeah. So as, again, sort of as a quick candidate, I told that lawnmower suicide story at the moth once mm-hmm. and I got heckled when I was telling it. It was kind of, it really pissed me off. Yeah. Do you remember what they said? Well, it was, it was kind of weird because like I was being kind of quote unquote supportive heckling. You know, mm-hmm. I was talking about getting dumped by my girlfriend and blah, blah, blah. And this guy kept screaming out that bitch. Uh, fuck her and i was just kind of like and he just would not shut up the whole story uh, and at one point i finally looked down and said look do you want the microphone yeah you gotta you gotta call it out sometimes yeah that sounds like but, a one-off though it wasn't as if a third of the audience was doing something to uh just one dude it was just really weird and yeah, he came up to me is. afterwards and it was kind of you know 
again, social interactions can be weird. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it was the same guy, but he came up to me after and he didn't say, I'm sorry, I was rude. He said, I thought yours was the best story tonight. You were a great man. And then he just turned around and walked out. Who knows? And I was just like, okay, whatever. Right. Um, but there are a lot of people who get up there and it, it really, I mean, you can feel sympathy and sort of an emotional wavelength in a room. Yep. And oh. there are a lot of people who are getting up there because they like doing that. When I got into storytelling, I wasn't telling those mm-hmm. stories. You know, I wasn't really going there. It seems a little odd because I'm more or less an introvert. I'm, like I said, I'm a guy who is thinking the pandemic's actually in some ways kind of an improvement on my life. But I was also a theater major. So oh yeah, there's a certain aspect of it. It's kind of like, I like telling stories. I've always liked telling stories. And having the opportunity to go somewhere where people will listen instead of you know getting talked over and having to compete you know you got the mic for five minutes here it's yours yeah and just be able to drop a story out there it's it's from an artistic perspective it's just it's a nice outlet yeah when was the first one for you is was the moth the first foray because they're the big boy it's funny because i tried to actually pitch to the moth directly never got an answer oh like a main stage type thing well, they used to say, you know, call our pitch line. You just call a phone number and you tell them a little bit about a story. And I never heard anything back. Yeah. And then I heard about the slams and I was like, well, OK, I'll just go try this as a slam. And I ended up I ended up loving that format mm-hmm. just because the main stage stuff can be sort of kind of manicured, kind of overproduced in some respects. And there's a certain rawness to the slams and just the variety of the yeah. slams. You never know what you're going to get. It's just completely random. I used to tell people, you know, who are new at the Moss Slams, you know, there's going to be 10 stories. Three will be written out and rehearsed. Three will be somebody who knows what they want to say, but just gets up and wings it. Three will be drunk. And there will be one TMI in every, <laughs> every night. I wonder. Yeah. So with that filter, if you go back, it's probably pretty accurate, huh? Yeah. Did you, How many of you won? Three. Nice. Not that it matters, <laughs> but it's nice to win. Complete honesty here. Yeah. I've won three, but got credit for two scorekeeper wrote the score down wrong of the last guy one night oh so he actually beat you no i actually won oh but the other guy oh, like, got the credit for it because she wrote his scores down wrong and i was just like yeah i'm not gonna be a dick and try and claw this back <laughs> i'm trying to see how these worlds sort of in some ways start to overlap and how story particularly this kind of story um can help people and that's my sort of journey and i'm figuring it out but thus far there's a space for it and you were sort of alluding yeah. to that. Well, like you said, until I heard Chandra's story, I was not sure about that. Yeah. But then you know, I told you know, my story that one month and literally a month later, someone comes with a very, well, at least similar in the sense that we both tried to commit suicide. And someone comes to another one of your events a month later and in the same 99 second format drops another one of those out there. And that's what got me thinking this might not be so odd or yeah. offbeat after all. Yeah, there's some sort of such power in hearing somebody else do something and it's okay. It's like a, we know, I I don't know. I can't speak for you. Sometimes in hearing it or seeing it, it's a sort of permission that I know already, but there's such power in that. Like, Oh, okay. That's a thing. There's also that sense. I didn't really know. No. Well, like I said, I, I had come to the firm conviction. Everyone thinks about it, but I thought maybe, you know, a lot smaller than 1% ever think about actually doing it. There's kind of that sense of embarrassment or shame about it. And to have someone else in one of these other storytelling things come out and say, well, hey, I did it too, made me think, well, there might be more people out there and there might be more people who would be interested in a why not discussion. Yeah. I had asked you earlier, like, why do we sort of a 
why do we romanticize it? Another question around this, I don't think there's a right answer here, but why do you think there's so much damn shame around it? Um, and that's really not pointing at the people who feel ashamed. It's, I think, a larger question around why are we in this space where we, I don't know what the word is. There's just a lot of shame. I think that's part of the reason I have the podcast, right? I'm just curious about these questions. What is that, do you think? I would like to think of it in the kind of sense of pre and post. There's kind of a pre-romanticization of it. Mm-hmm. And a post, it's weakness. People will say I'm weak. Mm-hmm. People will not want to hear that I was that weak. So I think there's we both have the misconceptions going in and coming out. I don't even remember the title. There was, what, two or three years ago, that Netflix series. 13 Reasons Why. Exactly. 13 yeah. Reasons Why. And there was this kind of panic, you know, it was getting popular on Netflix and people were like, you know, shit, you can't say that kind of stuff because people do romanticize this pre they do romanticize this, but then post there's this kind of, I fucked up. I don't want to talk about fucking up and people are going to hold it against me that I was weak in that moment. Yeah. At least that's how I felt about it. Well, so yeah, I guess there's larger questions or other questions around that of, is it generally speaking weak? And then so what? <laughs> we are yeah, a culture so that what? doesn't reward perceived weakness. Right. We love the badass, the the, the you go get them, right? We got with yeah. pioneers and we ventured out west and all this shit. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. But you tried to end your life. We all try and craft our own story yeah. out of this. And there's some people who could say, you know, I tried to commit suicide, but then I got my shit together and I went right. on to become the CEO of a company, blah, blah, blah. It's part of my own story that I went from the bottom to the top. Yeah, you could. But for most of us, we don't go to the top. We go to the middle. <laughs> There's in its own way kind of enough of, as same accomplishment coming from the bottom and coming back to a point of Oh, peace. man. It's its own achievement, its own accomplishment. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, we, you know, the, the struggle for a lot of people, and I say this just having done this for, and it's been like six months, so just based on that, a lot of conversations. The struggle to, for many people not to die, to not die. <laughs> Like you were saying, it gets better or saying what, you know, my words, not yours, but the idea around just try to keep going. Yeah. There is such achievement in that. I'm saying this aloud. I don't know if everyone agrees with me, but I look at that and I'm just as impressed as anybody who's a CEO. It's astounding to me that you're like. Some ways more so. Yeah. And I'm probably. Deal with a lot more shit than someone who gets to be a CEO. All of you are working really hard. We know, we know some people it's just to get up in the morning and others you're putting in 14 hours a day and you're climbing the ladder and all sorts of shit in between. But we don't spend a lot of time in my, you know, in my world and my filters, what I see in here. Yeah. Talking enough about that, that struggle and that achievement. I guess it's a little bit easier to point to somebody and say, you're at the top of the mountain. You're, you've got this title. Uh, you found the girl, whatever your, your things are, as opposed to you're not dead. It's yeah. a little bit trickier to sort of see and measure and sort of, okay, because I guess the default is you're supposed to be alive. Right. There's no, why are we rewarding you for not, but. As someone who tried it, I've often kind of come back to, if you're you know evangelical Christian, that's supposed to be one of the things that sends you straight to hell. Right. Yeah. And they pass, there are states that pass laws against committing suicide. It's like, technically you can only punish someone for failing to commit right. suicide. Or what's right. the point of passing a law for that? Right. Trying to make it quote unquote criminal. It's like 
who are you going to punish if someone succeeds? I mean, what's the fucking point of that? I think there are laws in some countries, and they may be abolished now, where they would actually penalize the family if you did die. For example, I was in Japan years ago, and I recall learning a little bit about their system. And I, this could be, it's been several years, so um, they would levy some sort of uh, tax against the family because they had to clean you up on the tracks, for example. They didn't fuck around. Uh, and in the United States for many, many years, it was criminal. No, again, right. If you, so really you're being arrested or uh, charged for the attempt. Right. You're not going to be going to jail if you're dead. You're going to a cemetery, presumably. But yeah, that's going to help someone that's in pain, right? Just let's now criminalize them and put them in a jail. They're already suicidal. Well, that whole thing never made any sense to me. The biblical sort of thing that you're going straight to hell for that. One of the phrases that just drives me batshit crazy is the people who say God never gives you something more than you can handle. It's like bullshit. Bullshit. It gives people, lots of people more than they can handle all the time. Yeah. And if you want to even say that God's the one doing it, it's like, how can you worship somebody like that? Yeah. I, I, I've always said, and I'm a barely Jewish guy from New York, so that should be noted as giving you some context, but everything I've learned about Jesus uh, from people on, in all places, dude was very forgiving. That was everyone. the point, yeah. Everyone agrees on that. Makes me wonder why you're saying, well, no, 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 not that forgiving with that stuff. I don't think it, no. Forgiving is forgiving, period. Actually, that includes everything like that, no? That therapist, that therapist I mentioned that I saw for 13 years, he was also Jewish. And at one point in conversation with him, I mentioned that I always find it weird that the most strict, severe evangelicals spend a lot more time talking about the Old Testament than the New Testament. Uh. And why don't they call them born-again Jews? And my psychologist said, because we wouldn't have them. Yeah. And it's like they spend, you know, like they pick all this shit out of the book of Leviticus. Say, that's the stuff you have to pay attention to. It's like, that's the weirdest. Well, Revelations is probably the weirdest book in the Bible, but Leviticus is right up there like a number two. Mm. Leviticus is just, and all the stuff that's in there, like, don't wear cotton wool blend suits, don't have shellfish. It's like, seriously? Mm. (laughs) And that people spend so much time obsessing about that stuff as opposed to the stuff that's supposedly in their book in the new yeah. Testament. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just... I do think that, yeah, it's a whole other thing, but religion <laughs> for, sure, for sure has a, a, a stamp on this world of people and making these decisions to uh, check out or try. There's, it comes up a lot, you know, how I grew up and, you know, the guilt and the shame and all that. Yeah. It was not for decades until after the song came out, but that whole REM song, losing my religion. Mm-hmm. Someone from the South finally told me, down here, that phrase means you're going crazy. Mm. And I was kind of like, well, that puts a whole different complexion on that song. Totally. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I didn't know that. Well, somebody like from you know, North, Car- North or South Carolina, somebody said, well, that's what that phrase means down here. But I was kind of like, whoa. That, I mean, it takes a pop song and makes it into something a lot more deep. Yeah. Mm. Both, well, both in the... I'm doing a song about I'm going crazy, but also just what it says about society when your reflection of going crazy is you're losing your religion. Right. Correct. Like that's like, the thing. That's the thing that you're talking about. Right. With respect to your That's satire. what that means to you. I right. don't go to church on Sunday anymore. I know. That's a big yeah, part of like, the culture. 
the family I came from, my dad was not very religious. My mom was a Christian scientist. The way they raised us was you had to go to Christian scientist Sunday school until you were 13, at which my dad said we were the age of majority and make our own decision. And of course, at age 13, everybody wanted to sleep in on Sundays. We all you know, we went to Sunday school until we were 13, and then it was when it could stop. Well, I have to say, and uh, without sounding glib or trite, and I'm not even sure I know what those two words <laughs> mean. I'm glad that you're uh, you didn't swallow the uh, uh, what was it? Trombone? trombone cleaner. Yeah, that's the instrument I had when I was in seventh grade. I think it was. And that the lawnmower wasn't the ideal choice for ending your life. You wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be having this talk, <laughs> and presumably a lot of whole other good things that have happened in your life. So that's cool. Yeah. And like I said, the sort of the takeaway for me was it does sound banal. It does sound trite, but put your head down and plow through it. You know, Mm -hmm. things will change. It may take a long time, but things will change. And it's hard to see that sometimes when you're in it. Very hard to see it. sometimes. Maybe if enough people, well-intentioned people who have been there or near there say it. Yeah. Maybe that person will keep doing it. Like I said, if you can get a juggling for dummies book, something like that whatever it is for Find you right? something to do yeah yeah something to focus on something to keep your mind occupied and yeah something to take your mind off it a little bit easier said than done we know that often but there's a lot of stuff out there so you're not who knows what it is if it's maybe it's juggling making a garden or going to story yeah. slams i or mean story slams are all of the above yeah all right mark anything else uh uh what else uh, any other words for our our, our growing base of listeners <laughs> well, that's it for me i mean do you have any other questions or is that pretty much it uh, i you know what i could do this for hours so i would always <laughs> have more but at some point for both of our times i have to stop but it's good I, these, these things i think people hear them and um and they're they are helped and from time to time they even reach out and tell me so so that's good to hear cool man well thanks again for talking with me man oh. about this i really appreciate it thank you hopefully okay. somebody will find it helpful in some some way they will they will. All right. See you uh, Sunday and uh, yep. enjoy your day, ma'am. You too. Talk Thanks to you later. Bye. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and special thanks to Mark up in freezing Massachusetts. If you're a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please shoot us an email, hello at suicidenoted.com or social media, Twitter and Facebook, at Suicide Noted. Remember, other ways to help us out. Patreon, the information is in the show notes. Rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple. All of these things will get these stories out to more and more people around the world. Stay strong. Do the very best you can. I'll talk to you soon.